So hello and welcome, happy Friday. Today is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers episode number 222. 222, I'm Frederick Dunn. This is the way to be. I'm really glad that you're here today on September 1st, Friday. Too bad summer's basically gone. I used to say it this time of year when I was a kid because they closed down all the swimming pools and everything. So it's Labor Day weekend. It's likely that you have a three-day weekend off. And guess what? The weather's going to be fantastic. Three days in a row and beyond right here in the northeastern United States, state of Pennsylvania. If you're a beekeeper out here, you've got a beekeeping weekend ahead of you, unless somebody's forcing you to barbecue or something like that. What's temperature outside right now? 71.2 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's 22 degrees Celsius. And uh, Saturday, Sunday in the 80s. Good. It's a little breezy, 4 miles an hour. Not bad at all. 52% relative humidity. That's fantastic because now the bees can dry their honey down really fast. And let me tell you something, the honey is in the air. I can smell the apiary 100 feet away from it right now if there's the slightest breeze. So you might want to make sure and double check your pest protection, meaning bears, raccoons. I don't know what comes to eat your honey. Um, I have skunks to cruise through. Our skunk uh, situation is completely solved simply by elevating our beehives to 18 inches. And my grandson is on that. So uh, the other thing is during the opening sequences you might have seen some of the bees at feeders. What kind of feeders were they? Those are bee buffets, those white troughs, and what was it feeding? Just water with a uh, single teaspoon of sea salts per quart. So those were two quart containers, two teaspoons of salt. More salt is not better. But let me tell you what's going on. It's really in demand. The bees are emptying those. And I have two of them out there because I'm comparing two different salt sources. Uh, Himalayan salts, which are not sea salts. They're just Himalayan salts. And they have minerals and everything in them. And then we have the Morton sea salt, which comes from uh, the, let me see, maybe the salt flats, something like that. So anyway, uh, the bees have shown a preference for the Morton salt. Tight second was for the uh, Himalayan salts. So if you're putting those out, and I recommend that you do, you also need to have regular fresh water available, which my bees have because they're going to my pond. They have a river nearby. They have lots of sources for water. So I know if they're going after the salted water, they're really needing it for something. Mentioned it last week. Don't know what they need it for. I just know that they want it. So I give it to them. The other thing is there may be concerns about higher salt content as far as how it interacts with the microbiome of the bee. So that teaspoon per quart is pretty much the limit. Higher is not better. It also may be detrimental. I don't have the science to back it up. It's just what I'm told. So the questions that we're going to go over today were submitted during the past week. There were a lot of them, so I had to filter down on these. And I appreciate those of you who wrote in. If you're wondering how do you do that, you look down in the video description and there's a link that will take you to my webpage, which is thewaytobe.org. And there's a page marked The Way to Be. There's a form there that you can fill out. For those of you who are traveling this weekend, and according to the news, a lot of you are here in the United States. Three-day weekend. So it's a podcast. In fact, this entire series is a podcast. So I highly recommend that you make your children listen to The Way to Be for, you know, three days of vacation. I'm just kidding, but uh, could be fun. You never know. There might be another 
like my grandson who's out there who wants to learn everything there is to know about bees. Uh, what else? I think I covered it all. So, all the topics are listed in order. Please check it out. Thanks for being here. Question number one. This comes from Gary from Montague, Massachusetts. When do you put your hive alive fondant on your hive? Okay, I don't do that yet here because we have a big nectar flow still going on. In fact, this is our biggest nectar flow of the year. That's why we also have swarming potential right now, which means you have to be an active beekeeper. But anyway, moving on, uh, let's talk about the purpose for the fondant to begin with. And it doesn't have to be hive alive. A lot of people feed other things. They use the mountain camp method of putting dry sugar on their hives. Uh, some people use rapid rounds to put sugar in the wintertime on. Some people have winter patties, which is different from a pollen patty. So all of these things are offered, but I have narrowed it down for myself to the Hive Live fondant packs. Uh, and when I'm going to put them on is when the nectar flows over, when it starts getting cold. In fact, I would say you can put them on as placeholders at any time because you don't have to cut the plastic. You know, if I were prepared, I would have had one sitting here to show you. But anyway, they're encased in plastic and you just leave them like that. But as the temperatures get cold and we're talking October around here, uh, that's when I would put them on the hives and just have them at the ready. And then one day you go out there and uh, when you realize that the nectar sources are disappearing, then you can go ahead and cut your fondant pack. It's an emergency feed that sits on top of your inner cover. So I don't do that until probably late October. And then some people get concerned because they have the honey on that's supposed to get them through winter. And as soon as they open up their Hive Alive fondant pack, the bees are up in it. And to that I say, that's fine, who cares? Because if they're eating the fondant, they're not eating their own stored honey, right? So either way, it's a resource. It's easy to check on through winter, so those warmer days that you get, sunny days. Anyway, so I put mine on near the end of October when things start to get cold. So if you really had to have a solid benchmark, I would say when it starts getting to freezing temperatures at night and we see the flowers disappear. So we have late season flowers ahead of us here. And you might be wondering what some of those would be. Maximilian sunflowers, cosmos flower right past frost, and uh, of course the hyssop, which I don't have enough of, but I'm going to expand that. The giant hyssop, Agastachi, is uh, also going to be providing for them well into the late season. I just wish I had more of it. So I think, let me see, that's about it. And if you want to know if you could get a discount for Hive Alive Fondant, I think just about every YouTuber that teaches about bees is also offering discounts for Hive Alive Fondant packs or Hive Alive Syrup, which for those of you who end up open feeding at the end of the year or putting extra syrup on your hives going into winter, don't forget to add the Hive Alive syrup to that. And the treatment dose is one gallon, not of the syrup, but of mixed sugar syrup. And then you add the uh, recommended dose of Hive Alive to that. That helps with Nozema. And it's a combination of things that are helping our bees get through winter, so. Those help, and that does have science behind it. So let me, I think that's pretty much it for that. You can get a discount. I'll put a link to the Hive Alive. Plus, you can see the interview with the inventor of Hive Alive, and uh, you can also see some YouTube videos about it showing what it's for. Question number two comes from Nancy from Nazareth, Pennsylvania. 
I've had bees for less than a year, so I haven't winterized my two colonies yet. I use wrap-it-around feeders in my feeder shim underneath the top cover. When the colder weather comes, how do we use an inner cover if I'm using the feeder shim? Okay, so this may be something that a lot of new or beginning beekeepers misunderstand. Your inner cover is an integral part of your feeder shim. A shim is just a spacer. So wherever you put a shim, you have a spacer that accommodates in this case, we're talking about a wrapping round. For those of you who don't know, wrapping rounds are feeders like this. It's called a rapid because it's a way to put food and resources on your hive quickly. But look, they have little cones in the center here that stick out. See the bottom of that? Um, so whatever your inner cover is, if it's an insulated inner cover, and I hope it is, if it's an integral part of your feeder shim, I'm going to put links down in the video description here associated with question number two. So you can watch a video that shows you how I build my one piece feeder shim with integrated uh, bottom boards built into them. So because of this little round part that sticks out, and by the way, that may not match the hole that's on your inner cover, so then I just take any old piece of scrap wood, and in this case, I think that's a two inch diameter hole. And you can set your wrap it around feeder right on top of that, and then set that on your inner cover. And now there's no space. The bees cannot get up in and around this. And for those of you who don't know, take the cover off. This part is for syrup. If you're no longer feeding syrup, this comes off. This goes back on, and the fact that you have a feeder shim or a box around it, your feeder shim can be made of just a medium super, for example. This is two inches, but of course we added three quarters of an inch if it's sitting on a piece of wood. And then just save this up there in there. Now if you didn't have this, this was off. And the shim that makes it so that that cone creates an airtight seal so that your bees don't go all over the space here. You take that off and then your Hive Alive fondant or whatever kind of fondant you want to use would lay on top of that. So I hope that answers that question because it's an interesting one. And for those of you who are wondering what kind of inner cover I would recommend, it's the B-Smart insulated inner cover. Polystyrene. And then it has this little cap that comes off, which by the way, I've lost one. It goes in this little cap holder right there and then you wrap it around sits right on this and if you notice look see the space there it doesn't sit perfectly flush so you can do the same thing or i have gaskets that are for mason jars and you can put a gasket on here and then that takes up the slack and takes away the space that the bees would otherwise have to access things around here Ta-da! And then that sits on there. So there are a lot of ways to make that connect, but see, we've got the space around here. That's why I take medium supers. There is a, it's called the, the Duo, where they sell the B-Smart Designs outer cover. That overlays this, but look, then there's no feeder shim space. So if you take a medium super, set that on here, then you'll notice there are gaps around the edges when you do that. So I use expansion foam around those edges and I turn it into a single unit. So much like my feeder shims that have integrated uh, inner covers, this is the inner cover. This becomes the feeder shim if you put a medium or a shallow super on it. Then your outer cover goes over that and don't forget to pop in a layer of double bubble 
over the top of your wrapping round or directly over the top of your fondant, whatever you're putting in there, and that gives it another layer of insulation. So I hope that helps. There goes my cap on the floor, of course. I hope I remember to retrieve that. Otherwise, I've lost another one. So, how to use the inner cover if I'm using a feeder shim. So, those are integrated. Those work together. Question number three is from Brad. Chester, New Hampshire. Yesterday, my brother inspected his eight-frame Saskatras hive and found many worker bees, lots of cells with pollen, but very little capped honey, no eggs, no larvae, no capped brood, never saw a queen, and appeared to be queenless. So he purchased a new mated queen today, and I went up to help him, and I confirmed there were no eggs, larvae, or capped brood, but I did find the queen. She seemed very healthy and active. Is it possible for her to be in the hive but not laying eggs for at least 21 days and still be a good queen? We also placed the new queen cage on top of the frames and the workers instantly accepted her and started feeding her. I am stumped. So a couple of things could have happened. Well, a lot of things could have happened, but one is that it's not that there'd be a queen there the entire time that could have laid for 21 days or not laid for 21 days. What else do you think might be the case? That could be a new queen who has either just recently been mated or maybe she's just now maturing off. Maybe there was a queen cell miss, would it, which would explain, of course, this loss of brood. Now, the other part is let's get ahead of it. You already have a new queen, she's in lay, so she's in full production. We know that the queen that you have there, whether she's young, whatever the circumstance is, she's not laying. So let's take her out and let's put her in a, a nuke, right? And uh, I would suggest putting, since they're already accepting that new queen and they're feeding her and they're licking her and they're totally accepting that queen, I would release that queen. Now, for those of you who are wondering, Fred, when did he send this question? Did you leave him hanging all this time? No. I respond to questions like that right away because it's time critical. So I already suggested uh, introducing the mated queen that they have of known genetics, pulling the queen that they found and putting her in a separate nucleus hive. And that's what they did. And I think everything's going to be great. But uh, there could be a number of reasons that may not be the original queen that's in there and just not be laying. There are other things that contribute to when and if a queen would be laying or in production, but... Given that this is New Hampshire, this time of year, I think they're similar to us. Um, there should be uh, eggs and there should be full production of brood inside unless the queen's been replaced. But you've got a laying queen and you've got an insurance queen off to the side. So I hope we get an update on if she's laying or what she might be doing. Question number four comes from Tim, Millersburg, Ohio. Hi Fred, I would enjoy to hear your opinion on handling the fall flow. I run double deeps and I have one super on now. I do want those deeps plugged out so I don't have to feed for winter and however, I do want to have room for brood. Everybody wants room for brood, that's true. Seems like a good flow at this time. Not weed, goldenrod coming on. Should be a decent flow throughout September. Okay, so... Um, there are lots of management ways, but a lot of people are looking ahead. 
as Tim is, I think, uh, to the potential for packing down at the end of the year. And we want our frames in our hives to be maxed out with resources as we go into winter. But that's still, it's still a ways off. This is the first day of September, so we have a lot of time. I've collected swarms this time of year in the past and had them build up on their own and make it through winter. So I think we're in good shape. So rather than expanding your hives, I think it's good to pull frames of uh, capped honey and replace them with drawn comb if you have it, and I hope you do. That way you keep them productive, you keep them storing and moving their resources up high in the hive. It will help them stay out of the brood area so you can still have that turnover of fresh brood going on and you won't risk being honey bound, but it is active beekeeping now. And it doesn't mean you go down through your whole hive. Uh, you just open the top, pull the inner cover off, uh, look to see if there's a bunch of cap frames. Now here's another thing, and I think I'm gonna talk about this with another question too, but I'll mention it now. If you have uh, frames through the center, like if it's a 10 frame box, and you've got six out of 10 that are full, and usually it's the middle frames that fill up the fastest, and then on the outside, you may have frames that aren't even worked. I suggest pulling your cap frames, moving them to the outside position, so first and 10, and then taking those partially drawn or not yet finished frames and put those in the center, not right next to each other, but every other frame. So leave a solid cap frame, then have one that needs work, another solid cap frame, and so on. And that way it keeps them in production. You can go out there and this time of year with the nectar flow on, I've had them fill and cap those replacement frames in less than 11 days. So it is kind of a thing that you have to do actively and this is where your records are gonna be critical. Keep up with them. And uh, then of course, uh, if the whole thing fills out, now we start to pull frames and put them in storage. And that's because as we get to the end of the year, uh, some of the frames will not be filled or we could get a, you know, a bad stretch of weather and then they start to consume a bunch of their honey resources prematurely. And then as you get into the end of October, that's when you bring those completed frames out and you restore them if you want to do that. Otherwise, you'd be feeding them heavy syrup and helping them to recover. But when we get to the end of the year, the end of October, I don't mind that you know all the frames are full of honey and that even the brood area is very small because the first few freezing nights, they're clustered over that and they're consuming the honey out of those cells and then those become immediately used for brood again. So I don't see that as a huge problem once it gets later in the year, but right now you risk swarming. So congestion is one of the triggers for swarming, and I recommend cycling out frames like that. A lot of ways to do it though. It's not the only method. Question number, number five comes from Eric, Kalamazoo, Michigan. I see most beekeepers keep large concrete blocks on top of their hives. I've been using eight by 16 patio pavers during the last swarm spell. I noticed that this block gets very hot. I'm sorry, it's not the last swarm spell. It's the last warm spell. Okay, I noticed this block gets very hot and my bees bearded a lot. I was wondering if it would be better to use a different method during the hot summer days and switch back to a concrete block after summer to help maintain the hive's temp. So I don't know that the, this depends on the hive configuration, but for me personally, like if I put a paver on top of a hive instead of a strap or something like that, um, I don't think it really has much, if any, impact on the interior climate of the hive. 
And the reason I say that is because my outer covers are insulated, and I hope yours are too. My inner covers are insulated, and I hope yours are too. And uh, so putting a, you know, a piece of concrete on the top of it to help stabilize the hive in heavy weather and things like that uh, should not be transmitting its warmth into the hive beyond the bee's ability to, you know, keep it cool. So the thing is also at night, uh, that would kind of serve as a heat battery. You know, like, I don't know if right after sunset you ever gone up and sat on a big piece of granite, for example, they retain heat. So depending on where you're located, but this is Kalamazoo, Michigan, I don't know what the weather's like there, but if it's not in the 90s, if it's only in the 80s or 70s or below, you actually would benefit from residual heat overnight. But let's move on. What else would I use? Several people wrote to me when they see that I tie down my hives with ratchet straps. Ratchet straps are a pain for a lot of people apparently, and they'd like to recommend something different. So what I've ordered recently, these come in 12 foot lengths. These are, what do they call them? Just lashing straps. So they have a simple buckle on them. So when you're lashing things down, you just pull it and then you let the buckle go and it's tight and holds its position where the rapid strap, the ratchet straps, you feed your strap through and then you ratchet it down and then you tie off the surplus. And uh, so I got these in 12 foot lengths. And if that's not enough, of course, you can, you can run these one after another. So I wanna thank the people that recommended that to me because they helped me spend my money. I bought a bunch of them. How many did you buy? Whole box of them. And look at the ratings on here, by the way. This is curious to me. 600 pound brake strength. Sounds good to me. Most of my ratchet straps are 1200 pounds plus, but it says 200 pound load capacity. So I wonder if that means 200 pounds could hang from it. I don't know. So maybe I could swing from it because I'm not, I'm not 200 pounds, 600 pounds brake strength. So I don't know what breaks first, the strap. I would guess the weak link in here would be this little pin that would probably bend or break. But anyway, this is what I'm using and in the future probably we'll strap things down. They come in different colors if that's important to you. But uh, that's what I'm trying out. How did I choose them? I just chose the ones that had the highest ratings and the most ratings on them. They're very inexpensive by the way. So it's a cam buckle tie down. So that's what I plan to use instead of bricks on there. Bricks are so convenient for me. Just because I can walk up and take it off, look right in the hive and put it right back. Because I have ratchet straps. But now with cam buckles, I don't know, I guess it's probably quicker and easier and now I don't have to have bricks all over the place. Bricks are handy to have though if you're setting your smoker on something that you want to be non-flammable and things like that. But yep, that's it. I think insulating your hive cover, outer cover, inner cover, those things should be insulated summer and winter. You benefit all year round. And then I don't think that uh, you'd be concerned at all about the transmission of warmth from your uh, concrete block. Question number six comes from Dimitri. Does I have a question about the divider board on a land's hive? It's necessary to leave is it necessary to leave a small gap underneath the divider board where we're getting the bees ready for winter? I live in Southeast Wisconsin. Okay, so here's the thing. 
First of all, I'm no Lands expert. I have Lands hives. Uh, I like them, and uh, I listen to Dr. Leo Sharashkin, of course, because he's the horizontal hive guy. And he explains it like this, leave a gap under that divider board. Now keep in mind, I also have Langstroth, horizontal hive. Um, leave a gap under the divider board so that the bees, he says, are not surprised to find out there's a bunch of extra space over there when you end up moving the divider board, then of course, adding more frames to the hive. Now, I don't know about surprising your bees. And it definitely allows air movement, but what I ended up doing uh, was putting a copper mesh under there, which allowed airflow, but did not allow the bees to move. And then they propolize all of the copper mesh, so they close it up themselves. Uh, I think there's some advantage maybe to not having a piece of wood that fits really tight. You just want it to be snug enough, in my opinion, because this goes against what Dr. Leo tells people to do. I don't mind if my bees are a little bit surprised when I move the board. I don't know what their awareness level is. And I'll move that board and just move a couple of frames in there, which by the way, all of my horizontal hives are my strongest colonies. Uh, well, there's a lot of strong colonies out there, but let me just say every horizontal hive is doing extremely well right now to the point where my lands hives, again, are out of space and they just provided us with a swarm. So a big swarm too, not some little mamby-pamby swarm. I mean a swarm that, well, you're going to see at the end when my grandson gets his bees, his first hive ever in his life at the age of seven that came from a lands hive. So anyway, uh, that's going to be personal choice. If you've got more than one, do one with the space underneath and one without and see what happens. I don't know. If you're following Dr. Leo, he wants you to leave that space open so the bees can cruise in and out along the bottom. And uh, I've just, mine were gluing it up anyway, so I just let them close it up. In fact, uh, because there's a gap underneath that divider board, I just took a two by four and I set it on the bottom up against that. So bees are on this side, divider board, two by four on the bottom, just closing it up because I didn't want to deal with a bunch of bees in there when I opened the hive to do inspections and things like that. Moving on to question number seven, Michael from Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. When you have a queenless hive or a nuke, queen cells have been started, some are capped, you install a new queen. Question is, is it necessary to tear down the cells or can you leave them for the queen or workers to destroy them? Okay. This is different from uh, allowing them to requeen themselves and having a bunch of queen cells in there that are competing. That queen already lives there. She has been developed by those bees. Uh, the queen that produced her left, she has a genetic connection. And then when the others are about to emerge, in theory, she goes around and chews into the side of all their queen cells and stings them right under their wing, right? We have a different scenario though. You're introducing a queen that is mated, that's foreign to the colony. So in that instance, you know, I like seeing how things pan out generally, but if I'm bringing in a queen that I've paid money for and I have known genetics and I want to see how they're going to work out and I want to keep her, I would definitely go through very carefully and cut out and remove every queen cell that's in the hive. Or I would pull a frame with a queen cell on it that's capped 
and I would put that in a nucleus and see if I can't start another colony with her. If you don't need that, if you don't want that, or you don't think the population of the colony would support that, then uh, I would just cut away all the queen cells and put in the queen that I just paid for. Moving on to question number eight comes from Freddie from Elgin, Texas. I know you've spoken ad nauseum about top entrances. See, I put my own emotion into things. And ventilation. It seems for the most part that you're against the concept. I've also heard folks, uh, not necessarily you, say that the bees know what's best for themselves. That being said, I keep a two inch hole in my inner covers covered with number eight hardware cloth. The bees seem to regulate this opening with propolis depending on the time of year. Aren't you deciding for the bees what is best for them without letting them regulate what's easiest and best for their hive condition? Why or why not? Okay, so it sounds like uh, Freddie thinks I'm beating a dead horse already because I've talked about it so much. And one of the things about beekeeping is we're always on the learn. We're always making observations, seeing what's going on and finding out what works. So if there's science that supports or defeats a concept that I have. Because uh, I started out venting, I started out doing all of these things. And we spoke of feeder shims earlier on. So I designed my own feeder shims. I have integrated inner covers and they're rock solid. In fact, people ask why we don't sell them and ship them, and that's because they weigh 40 pounds. They're made out of oak. They're super heavy. Um, and of course, when I was doing that, uh, I was just having the center hole in it, which is for feeding, so the wrap-it around system. And then we could insulate that. It's heavy wood. And then some people said, why aren't you venting those? You, f you forgot, you left out the vents. So I built another one and uh, I included holes about this diameter, two of them in the back, right? And I put number eight, so the same screen, number eight stainless steel screen is what I put there to keep the bees from going up into the space, but that would allow some airflow up through the outer cover. And you could control that, right? Because why not find out what the bees are gonna do? And now keep in mind, I'm in the Northeastern United States. I'm not in Texas. So I don't know what the bees would do left to themselves down in Texas. But up here, what they did was they completely plugged up with propolis that screen. So they closed off venting. They didn't want it. And one of the things that I learned about back then is that uh, a lot of people have summer configurations and they have winter configurations for their beehives. And uh, this is why they would make modifications and provide venting and screens and things like that, even in the top. And there are people that leave the bottoms of their hives wide open, nothing but screen. So then um, you talk to people, whenever you get a chance to talk to another beekeeper, find out what their experience level is, find out what kind of observations they make. And you'll find that some people simply do what they've always seen being done. And there's no open discussion. You know, if you've been doing something for 20 years or 30 years and it's not broken, why fix it? That's the thinking, right? But I'm always asking people. So when I got to the conference last year in January and I was put up on stage with Randy McCaffrey and Mr. Ed. Um, these are guys, now I already had kind of a, I had an idea about what I think bees like and what they do. And this isn't me imposing myself on the bees. This is me learning from observation of bees. And now I had the opportunity 
to talk to Randy who had done removals more than a thousand and uh, Jeff definitely in the hundreds. So that's Mr. Ed and that's Dirt Rooster for those of you who might be familiar with their channels. Because they do so many ripouts, these people are fantastic sources of information. They find bees in uninsulated buildings. Some of these buildings, it's a miracle anyone ever lived in them. Uh, there might just be clapboards on the outside. There might be some plaster on the interior wall and the bees are occupying the cavity. And the bees close it up completely. In other words, first, all, first of all, bees move into spaces when they're scouting for a new place to live. So when a swarm is on the move, and they bivouac somewhere, and those scouts are out checking out places. If there were vents and openings in the top of the cavity they're considering, the next thing that decides whether or not those bees would move into that cavity is what's the size of the openings that are in the upper parts of this cavity. So if they're just cracks and crevices and maybe some screening and things like that, the bees would still move into it, realizing, of course, that they can seal those openings up. So there comes a point where the opening is too large and the bees would avoid the space altogether. So it's always interesting uh, to see, and then what size entrance did they have? How much ventilation did they need? Now we're talking about Gulfport, Mississippi area. We're talking about Louisiana, which is one of the snakiest states in the union. And so we're talking high humidity. We're talking places where uh, the temperatures are much more extreme and the conditions are hotter and more humid than they are where I live. So even down there, the bees were sealing up their cavities and working those cavities. And in some cases, over many years, they occupy a space. And that doesn't mean it's the same queen, same bees, but it means the space gets continually occupied and reoccupied by other honeybees. So then it was always interesting to me, where's the entrance? How big is the entrance? What kind of venting did they have? I also want to know other details that they don't provide. Was it the south part of the house, the east part of the house? What walls are preferred? by these bees. But anyway, so I've collected this information from that practical hands-on experience and observation that both Randy and Jeff have provided, and there's no top venting. So then the other thing is the science end of it. So like Dr. Thomas Seeley and people that do studies of the interior climate of hives and how bees use it and the humidity and the CO2 buildup and all of these scientific experiments. So I'm drawing from many sources as well as my own personal observations over more than 17 years. So, and I'm, and I'm an intent uh, observer. So in other words, I'm not just passively keeping bees. I am always paying attention to what they're doing, what the environment is doing to them. And of course, how they're responding to the spaces that they're in, the type of hive configurations that we provide, and then right on down to venting and everything else, including insulation and those things. So it's not that I'm against it. It's that, that my observations and gleanings from people that I respect uh, have demonstrated that the bees don't need it and don't want it. So we can, sure, we can go in there and, and we can open things up. We can change them. We can reconfigure the hive going into winter. We can do a lot of different things and the bees can survive in spite of that. But uh, so I get my practices from a constant state of learning and practical observation. So that's how I ended up with that today. So the number eight hardware cloth is exactly the size that I used also. And, but again, I'm not in Texas. And of course that's an arid 
area potentially, depending on where you live in Texas. I've only been down to Lafiria, Texas and stayed there for a while. Um, so that's far southern Texas. But anyway, things may be different there. Maybe your bees wanted it. I don't know. But bees left to themselves kind of show us. That's why it's so important when we find these feral colonies in structures, in trees, and all these other things, uh, it wouldn't be characteristic for them to have any venting through the top of a tree unless there's some kind of uh, worn out portion of the tree where it's rotting from the center. And in that case, the bees have been probabilizing that for years and probably sealing it up and making it watertight, as well as having some medicinal value to the propolis. But uh, that's where I come up with it. It's not that I'm, I'm telling people that they have to, but I'm, I'm explaining that uh, just as I do for my Friday answers today. Uh, a lot of this is based on personal experience and observation, of course, academics and books and people that I can talk to. And one of the good things about being a master beekeeper or uh, being someone who educates people about bees is I'm constantly interacting with and meeting other educators. And so I have access to people that then we share information. If somebody gave me an aha moment and said, Fred, you got it all wrong. You have to go back to what you were doing in 2006 and you need to vent those hives because it's demonstrated that that's what bees would uh, do better in. If the bees would do better, you know, I'm, I'm all ears. But there are a lot of things at play that are against the venting off. It even goes into the amount of CO2 buildup, the reduced oxygen, that increased humidity, these can have impacts on the reproduction of the varroa destructor mite. And by impacts, I mean negative impacts. In other words, the bees can survive the environment, but varroa destructor mites under lab conditions, it's important to make that distinction. But uh, it is demonstrated because labs give them an opportunity to observe cause and effect, right? So then the varroa destructor mites had reproduction down to 1% of what they would have had had that hive been vented through the top. So it is interesting and uh, I'm always open to new information, but it's not that I, you know, that I, you know, I'm reinstating again here. So somebody else is probably thinking we're beating a dead horse here, but I do want to explain that it isn't uh, a light decision when I share information like that that I always want to be giving you information that's good and usable and that's going to benefit the bees as well. So if, if it changes later, I'll change later because I didn't always do this this way. I vented, I had uninsulated covers, I, had, I did a lot of the things just the way the hides are configured, the way they come from the manufacturer. So, but those are often commercial situations, but even commercial, this is interesting too, if you get a chance to look at commercial beekeepers, and I mean those with thousands of hives, look at the covers they have on them. Some of them have migratory covers with zero venting of any kind. There's no upper entrances or anything. So it is interesting then to see they have the statistical numbers, but of course they're moving with efficiency. Um, so it's just, there's a lot of information out there and I highly recommend that everyone just continue to reach out uh, for more information and, and understanding when uh, things are not working well for you with what you're currently doing. If what you're doing and the way it's working and the way you're keeping bees is healthy and they're all getting through winter or your losses are extremely low, then there may be no reason for you to revisit some other uh, configuration or piece of equipment. So, hope that works. Question number nine. 
Rodney from Muskego, Wisconsin. I started two resource five frame hives this spring. Both colonies are doing great and have grown to each being five boxes high. This has brewed up in the fourth box, um, one of his. So we're stacking five frame resource hives, five boxes high. That is a chimney. I know I need to downsize for winter. I need your suggestions on how to reduce the size down to two boxes for winter. Okay, so my nucleus hives stop at three, you know, and I'm just trying to visualize it. If you had five of them, that would look like a very unstable setup. But here's what I think I would do. You may not like this answer. But I think five is too high. The weather conditions that I get where I am, we get high winds in the dead of winter. Nothing scarier than to know that you've got beehives out there sitting tall as mine do because they have skunks hunting around. Not in the wintertime though, because the skunks hibernate or something. But uh, if I had tall nukes like that, I would have to strap them to one another if I wanted to keep them that high. And the brood goes all the way up. So, I don't know. I'd be really tempted because we have five of them. Let's see. Five frame hives this spring. Each of them are five high. So we have 15. 25. So you got two deep boxes. If you did two 10 frame deep boxes, you could condense them right down to two deeps. 10 frame boxes, though. I know that eliminates the nuke design which my nukes just do extremely well. But I think with this, with them being so tall, in order to set them up for winter really well, I think I would swap out all those nukes for double deep 10 frame boxes. That's just, now this is just a practical minded thing just for peace of mind when those winter storms hit and things like that. But if you can strap them together and they're not in jeopardy of being toppled over, um, I'm curious why the brood is so high. I don't have any that even in my threes where they go past that second box higher. The rest is all honey. So I'm wondering why, I wonder, is there venting near the top? Is there, you know, what other aspects of this configuration don't we know about? Um, but I would be tempted to pack them down to double deeps because those are the frames you have. Um, I don't know what else to tell you other than me personally, I wouldn't have let them get that big, but they're resource hives anyway. That's why we take things away from them, which this year I didn't because I didn't have any colonies that needed their resources. So that's very interesting. And uh, I don't know what else to tell you about that. I would pack them down. I don't know what Muskego has as far as the weather, the winds in the winter time and all that stuff. So. Yikes. Let me know what you do and how it works, but I think that's too tall for a narrow five frame footprint. Question number 10 comes from Randy from Parkersburg, Iowa. Currently, Iowa is in a level three drought. All the flowers are dried up. Bees are in a frenzy trying to rob out any hive they can and getting into trouble on the farm. Entrance excluders are on and seem to be working. Entrance excluders. I hope it's entrance reducers, but um, yeah, because we got to stop the robbing. 
I started to open feed with five gallon vacuum feeders with very light syrup. And that's something too he mentions, very light syrup. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the benefits of having, you know, light syrup for us has always been one to one, one part sugar, one part water. But now you could go all the way up to 1.3 parts water to one part sugar. Interesting. So you could have more water than before and the bees, they seem to do really well on it. Very interesting. Anyway, they drain two feeders a day for 30 hives of various sizes. Things have calmed down to normal in the bee yard. How long should I do this? Can I take a break or maybe start in hive feeding? It's never been as hot and dry before and since I've had bees. So me personally, I stopped with the big open feeding unless I'm cleaning up frames and things like that. So putting out actual syrup for the bees I don't do that anymore. I understand the circumstances where Randy is are kind of extreme. Uh, the other thing is who else has bees near where you live? If I knew for sure 100% that I'm feeding just my own colonies, I would probably put sugar syrup out there. When I realized that my bees are flying up and over the woods to the east and west of me, and some go into the south, I wasn't feeding my own bees, so forget that. I'm not feeding other people's bees. So then we go back to how do you control exactly which colonies getting the syrup that you want to provide for them in a time of dearth, by the way. I completely understand this to me, and this, this is where personal opinions get in and, you know, we can get polarized and everything. The Darwinian beekeeping aspect. Uh, there are people that write and say, why did you help that colony? I gave a colony a quart of sugar syrup that saved the colony from absolute implosion on itself just for lack of energy so people often want to say well let's just see which of those colonies survive and uh, work with those after all of that well i think you should feed them so pick the colonies that need the most help and i definitely would feed inside the hive and keep those entrance reducers on uh, to help keep those uh, protected from robbing because i don't know what it's like in Iowa right now, but the numbers of wasps are ramping up. And I go out and I stare at the beehives a lot. And we do have yellow jacket wasps zipping around and checking things out, but I was comforted to find out that I'm just seeing them picking up uh, dead bees on the ground. And there is a, a case where they're casting out drones now, so the wasps come. Often you'll find wasps pulling apart a drone. They didn't kill it. That's just the salvage group. So I don't think we're in trouble yet, but yeah, I would go to in high feeding and just feed those that really needed it. And I would allow the population of, you know, those colonies to respond to the environmental cues right now, because we could be facing a lot of changes. Uh, there's, there's weather is shifting and things are going on and people are having weather conditions that they've not had in the past. And so Often uh, we need to stay adaptable with our bees because these changes are too quick for the bees to adapt. So I would definitely recommend keeping them alive. Feeding in the hive. So question number 11. I know there's a lot of questions this week. Uh, this comes from Cobber Pete. And that's the YouTube channel name. Very interesting video. Can you explain on your Friday video why you use the isolation frame and a little more info on it as I'm not sure you have shown it before. Okay, so the video is one that I posted during this week 
and uh, had a colony of bees where, not a colony, it was an empty hive, and we were trying to put a swarm in it. And the bees went in like a normal swarm would, as if they approved of the space. And then it was the queen that got fickle, and she came back out, and I saw that queen. I was sitting there with my coffee cup, different one from this one. And while I was watching them, it looked like they were going to leave. And I reached out with my coffee cup because I saw the queen on the front and she was disappearing under a good glob of peas. About this thick, the queen came over the top and went under them. So I took my coffee cup and I scooped her into the coffee cup and then I put a piece of wood, one of my high visors, just sitting around. Put that on the coffee cup and then I thought, wow, yeah, I have a queen excluder cage that's designed to create a brood break. So what I did is I took a frame of, uh, let's see, there was nothing. So just drawn comb, put that frame inside a queen excluder cage. And then I turned the queen loose inside of that. And then I put the lid on that. I put that inside the hive. And that's how I kept that swarm from moving on. Then that's coming up. We're going to do a follow-up because that was midweek. Now, early next week, we have great weather, so we're going to revisit that hive, so I hope you'll tune in and watch it. If you're not a subscriber and you want the alerts when that comes up, you need to subscribe, please. So anyway, we're going to go in and we're going to see if the queen's laying and what the situation is, but I kept the queen from leaving, and then we'll just pull that frame out and put that in the hive, and then we'll take the cage away, and it's a queen excluder cage. So that lets us do that, but the original design and purpose for that cage is to isolate a frame of brood with the queen so that you can create a brood break and you can treat them. I have a page on my website, which is thewaytobe.org, and it is uh, artificial you know, isolation of the queen to create a brood break, and it shows the whole process there. So now, but that leads me to, there are isolation cages and there are queen introduction cages, and that takes us to the thumbnail for today. So the first thing is, I can't show you the queen excluder cage, which was the queen includer cage in this case, because it's still out there. So this is what they look like. This is a double. So this holds two deep Langstroth frames. So what you can do, of course, is you can have frames of brood, deep frames. Look, it's just an empty frame, of course. I just use this for training. But this is a queen excluder, which means Workers come and go through the sides, so nurse bees come and go, they attend to the queen. This keeps the queen from leaving. So if you've got some kind of study going on, or you need to see exactly what's going on with your brood, and you need to evaluate the brood, and you want your queen to maybe lay up a bunch of drone brood so you can use them to take out and not have to hunt all over for where these drone cells might be, you could have a frame of drone brood in here, put your queen in here, get that laid up. And that's why we have two, because we can have worker brood and we can have drone brood side by side. And then you'll pull out your drone brood when it's done, you know the age of it. And then you can release the queen, do a lot of different things. It's very versatile, but what it does is keeps your queen here. Now there's another one that you may have never seen before. And you may wonder what the purpose would be. This one is referred to as a queen introduction cage. A lot of ways to introduce new queens to a hive, right? 
So this, the bars are smaller, right? Not only that, look at the cover here. It covers the ends as well. So if you had a frame outside of your hive, uh, there's no place for the queen to get out of it. So when you pull this off, queens on this, in this case, it's pre-drawn synthetic beeswax called Better Comb. You can put a brand new queen on there, turn it loose on this, maybe even with some nurse bees if you wanted to. And you could put this in a hive where they might be known to kill queens. This happens a lot. You get a brand new queen, you spend a lot of money for her, you put her cage in there and they're trying to sting her through the cage. Maybe they chew through the candy plug that's on your queen cage and they get the queen and next thing you know she's dead and you're queenless again. This satisfies a lot of things. Okay. Uh, worker bees can't get into it. Only the queen can or the workers that you include. So for example, if you had a frame that's full of uh, capped worker brood, and we know that that capped brood is going to be emerging, let's say over the next four or five days. The other bees that are on here might be nurse bees only. So you could shake them off if you wanted to, but remember that your capped worker brood only has to be warmed. They don't have to be fed, right? Because they're in the pupa state. So if you had capped brood, shake that off in here, put this in, then you've got your queen that came in the mail or however she came, right? The one that you bought that you don't want them to kill, you can put her then, pop the lid, however your cage works. Put the queen down in here, and as soon as she goes down on that frame of brood, which by the way will be emerging over the next several days. So the first few nurse bees that emerge from their brood cells, they're also trapped in here. They can't leave because these bars are actually too small for even worker bees to go in and out of. So now the worker brood are in here and they will attend to the queen for you. Also, when bees are rejecting a queen that you've installed in your hive, they grab her and they sting her, or they just chase the queen out. This is why often people find a dead queen near the entrance or just outside the entrance or on the grass in front of their landing board. Now that's assuming that she couldn't fly. If she could fly, you could lose your queen and never even know it. So that's why it's a good idea to have something like this, and this is new. I like new things. I like to check out new stuff. So the company that makes this um, allows you to protect your queen from being killed while her pheromone is being spread through the hive. And the other thing that you'll know for sure, right, because you've got this queen in this cage, you're trying to introduce her because a lot of times this happened where even though we inspect the hive really well, um, we miss a queen or we missed a queen cell or something like that, and there's competition out in the hive. And if we know the queen's in here and the workers can't get in and out of this cage, uh, and yet you still start to find eggs, she's been in here a week or five days, and you find eggs out in the brood area, you have another queen. Or you've got laying workers, but her presence would suppress laying workers. If you had laying workers, they would try to kill this queen. But what happens is the longer she's in the hive and not killed by the residents, the more her pheromone spreads out. And then the workers in this hive will start to police up any eggs. By that, I mean they consume the eggs that are being produced by laying workers. 
And so they will start to suppress their reproduction again. So now, once that's established, and once she starts laying in here, because remember, you have nurse bees with her, they can't get out either. But remember, nurse bees aren't leaving the hive anyway. They're all going to be fed through these bars by other bees in the hive while she becomes accepted. So this is called a queen introduction cage. So both of these come from Better Bee. I know I mention Better Bee all the time. You probably think I work for them. I don't. I like a lot of things that they happen to sell and I go to Better Bee for a lot of new stuff. But anyway, the double frame uh, queen excluder cage, which allows you to create a brood break or whatever you need to do if you're trying to, you just got a late season swarm, you don't want them to take off again because this happens a lot to people. You put a swarm in a hive and then two or three days later you go back out there, the hive's completely empty, they absconded. They didn't like where they were living. If you have a double uh, queen excluder cage, then they can lay up, you can have you know, more than 6,000 bees in there. So they can start to brood up really nice and you're not losing time with the queen by isolating her. Where if you put her in one of those little teeny weeny cages, you're not gaining anything for your hive because she can lay that up in a half an hour. So if you've got these big frame cages and then you've got, whether it's the queen excluder or whether you've got the queen introduction cage, you have a lot of options in your arsenal when it comes to how you want to introduce a new queen, how you want to keep a queen that you just collected with a swarm, and uh, how you want to protect them from the rest of the hive while you assess the hive and find out what its real disposition is. Do you need it? Absolutely no. But let me tell you something. It was very nice to have that tool available when it was obvious I was going to lose that swarm, which is a huge swarm. A lot of bees. I'm not talking about, you know, a little cluster like this. Ah, well, we'll see if they make it or not. This was big. So the last thing I want to do is see them leave. And uh, so being able to isolate and keep the queen in there, but preventing them from leaving with her was a big advantage this time of year. So those are available at Better Bee. And you can do a search. You can mention that I sent you and you can pay the exact same price as everyone else. So I get nothing for mentioning Better Bee. Question number 12 comes from Ed, St. Charles, Minnesota. 12 questions today. You're welcome. Okay, should I be concerned about oxalic acid residue or crystals getting into my honey if I treat several times a year? So that's the question. I've heard that extra oxalic acid is one of is one's uh, diet causes kidney stones. And then uh, short of removing honey frames before treatment, are there any ways to reduce OA on honey frames or to test honey for OA to be sure that I'm not eating honey with too much acid or other residues. Now, as far as the other residues, I don't know. You always want to be sure if you're using any kind of miticide that it's been approved for uh, honey supers on. And therefore, if it is, it's approved for consumption of the honey afterwards. And this is something that I looked into for years before oxalic acid was approved here in the United States and before it was approved uh, with Honey Supers on because I wanted to know why they were dragging their feet if the early testing was that uh, you could not tell the difference. In other words, honey has oxalic acid in it. It's ubiquitous. 
because it's part of so many plants. And it's true that if you look up cases where some people have problems with oxalic acid, it's related to the plants that they're eating, kale, carrots, things like that. Those have oxalic acid in them. You can do a Google search to see which produce has the most oxalic acid present. So for those people who have sensitivities and those people who have, you know, preconditions that expose them to possibly having kidney stones and things like that, kidney stones or calcification, right? I'm not a medical guy. I'm not here to give you medical advice. That's why I constantly ask people about these tests that were being done. They could not determine a difference of the oxalic acid content in the honey for a colony that had been treated with oxalic acid. And by the way, the United States was very late to the game when it comes to using oxalic acid. It's considered a soft acid. Now, so it had OA in the honey before treatment. It also had OA in the honey after treatment. What was the difference pre and post treatment? Not measurable in other terms like not significant. Therefore, the Food and Drug Administration and uh, those that regulate the use of these miticides on whether or not you can have uh, honey supers on during the treatment determined that the levels were not significant to the point where it would be a concern. So they don't regulate it. Now, I don't know how many people watching right now who have been doing this with oxalic acid, how many of you have developed kidney stones because of it. So if that's the risk, I would say it's very low. There are a lot of things you can do uh, to keep your body from producing kidney stones. A lot of that has to do with diet, the amount of things that you drink and everything else. But if you're eating a lot of carrots, you're getting more oxalic acid than uh, those who are eating a lot of honey from a hive. Because that's the other thing. A pound of carrots, this makes some people get really kind of uptight when I make this reference. A pound of carrots is the equivalent of a full dose of oxalic acid, so a gram of oxalic acid for a single box, right? That would be the equivalent of, and who eats a pound of carrots? I don't know, but that was the first feedback. Is So you want me to force feed my family a pound of carrots? No, I don't. I'm making a reference here. If you did eat a pound of carrots, that is just like taking that full scoop of oxalic acid and eating it. It's the same amount of oxalic acid getting into your body. What you're putting in your hive when you do oxalic acid vaporization and the way it settles all over the surface of the bees and the interior surface of the hive, the only chance it has to get into the honey would be, of course, the open cells and how much of it gets in there. Then how much of that ends up in your finished honey at the end of the year when you uncap and you extract. Then how much of that gets consumed by a person. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's kind of like dilution is the solution to pollution to the point where this is what gave them that status of it not being significant. You would have to be eating copious amounts of honey and you would have to be, in order to get a dose that's measurable, that's a change from what's already coming from the plants. Because that's the whole point of oxalic acid. It already exists in nature. It is already out there. So the risk has been determined to be not significant. And so I agree with that. I think it's true. It, it always didn't make sense to me why they would prohibit us from using oxalic acid when we have honey supers on, when so many other parts of the world are using it. 
yet we allow things here that other parts of the world would never allow. And I'm not even going to get down that list. But oxalic acid is very low on my personal list of concerns. That's the last question for today. So now we're in the fluff section. Uh, we do have a follow-up video for you. Uh, my grandson, he is seven. He did install yesterday a queen in his queenless colony that he found. Also, as I mentioned before, we collected a swarm and uh, he got his first colony of bees. He's answering all the right questions. He's doing great things. The other thing I wanted uh, people to notice is sometimes he is, he's seven. He's out there in a full bee suit. He's got gloves that don't fit. They're floppy around his hands and everything else. And I want you to know that's not the way he dresses when he's around bees. So I'm going to open up with a little comedy for you there because I want to show you how he dresses when he goes in the bee yard because yesterday he was here counting pollen and making sure that every bee had uh, a laying queen and had brood and all that in it. And uh, he's out there and uh, he has a funny reaction, which I just happened to catch in slow motion. So you get to see that. But when he's wearing his full bee suit and everything else, here's why we do that. I'm from the school of failing safe. Uh, I go out there sometimes with just a veil. And uh, so the thing is, we're teaching people about beekeeping. And he's demonstrating safety. See? So he wears a full bee suit. He puts on boots and everything else. And if we're going to open up a hive, I think it's appropriate to tell people that that's how you should dress. Now, sure, later on, they might get more comfortable. They might not have gloves. Uh, they could expose themselves to being stung. They could be out there without any eye protection. I'm not telling people that they can't do that. Or, But what I want you to know is the reason we're doing that with him is because he's a model for other children. And so I think that we should show that uh, safety first. And then later, because kids, they're not very good at seeing down the road when it comes to what's going to hurt them. So we kind of have to tell them. It, you know, when he puts his face right up to a landing board and he's got no veil no eye protection or anything on it, and he gets stung in the eye, I have to deal, you know, with my daughter over that, who would not be very happy. So we're teaching the safety gear right along with the practices of beekeeping for a child his age. So we have to protect him. And uh, the other thing is, I want to, he's got a tiny fan club out there, so I want to give a shout out to Lilith, who sent him a voicemail message of how much she likes uh, seeing him. And that was really funny. And she's six, by the way. So there are little baby, not little babies, excuse me. There are young beekeepers out there watching this. I can't imagine that they would watch this without another child their age on. But uh, they're watching it. They're enthusiastic. And they're also learning beekeeping. So I think this is really great. And we're going to continue with that as long as he's interested. He's back in school now. So we're not going to see a lot of my grandson coming up but we do have him at the end of today. We already mentioned that wasps are on the rise. Check out your entrances, observe your entrances. As the nights get colder, the yellow jacket wasps have an advantage to start attacking and robbing beehives early in the morning while the bees are still clustered. So we wanna keep an eye on that. Keep the entrances small if you can as the nights cool down. There is a hive gate update on the Better Bee website. I'll put a link for that. And those are entrances that have proven very effective in wasp control. And uh, we already talked about frame moving, checkerboarding, and uh, combining potentially queenless colonies. That's it. 
Thanks for watching. If you have questions, please follow the link and submit them for next Friday. I hope you have a fantastic three-day weekend. Great weather here in the Northeast. Take care of all your bees, and I hope everything goes well as you start to prepare for the end of the beekeeping year. Thanks for watching. So Quinn, what do you have in your hand there today? Um, we are carrying some honeybees and a uh, queen. Honeybees and a queen? Mm -hmm. So workers and the queen? Yep. What do the workers do? Um, they're protecting the queen and feeding it. They're feeding her? Mm -hmm. So while they're in transit? Can you show it to us? Hold it really still. Okay, so the queen and some workers. Mm -hmm. And remember, we found a beehive that had a problem. What was the problem? A skunky beehive. Oh, I meant they didn't have any pollen or bees coming in, really. So we did an inspection, and what did we find out? No pollen, no honey, like no honeybees, no queen. No brood. No brood. No brood. So what do we do in the meantime while we're waiting for this new queen to come in? Um, make a video. We took frames from another beehive with brood on it, mm -hmm. right? So we could give her some yeah. nurse bees. Mm -hmm. And uh, this little wooden cage has a C on the end of it. That's because that's a carniolan. Carniolans are dark colored queens and they're good for cold weather which is what we have here, right? Mm -hmm. Can you think, do you know anything else about carniolans? No. No? Never heard of it. You never heard of it? Hmm. 
Okay, let's get this one introduced in the hive. And instead of smoke today, because smoke can upset the bees and it can also associate the installation of a new queen with a bad experience, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of smoke, what are we doing today? Um, sugar syrup. Gonna spray them with sugar syrup and it's gonna have honeybee healthy in it because that's been demonstrated to improve their acceptance of a new queen, but there should be no problem. And when, when we introduce a queen, we're gonna explain uh, how to know when the bees are accepting or rejecting her, what do you think? Got um, any questions? No. Ready to go? Mm -hmm. All right, let's do it. Okay, so this is a nucleus hive, five over five, both deeps. We gave them a little cursory squirt here in the front with Honeybee Healthy, two teaspoons of Honeybee Healthy per quart. And up on the top here, we have Reflectex. Quinn doesn't like it because it reflects the sunlight right into your face, doesn't it? Let's peel this off. Yes, I'm not trying to be oh, blind. Oh, we got some bees right here. You're trying not to be blind? No. Oh, there is. We did smash a little bee right here. Sorry, you did that. I'm just going to put this right here. Hey, guys. Just a queen. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. Um, give them a They're pretty calm, so we're not even going to squirt them. But I'm going to put this queen up here. And we're going to see what their reaction is to her. And if they're missing a queen, they should start feeding her. If they're not, then they may try to sting through the cage. So that's what we're going to see. Boy, there's a lot of bees coming up all of a sudden. And uh, what would you say they're trying to do there? Don't mind that. Um, Are they feeding or trying to sting? They're trying to feed. I think they're trying to feed too. Not only that, listen to them. Yeah. They sound calm, don't they? Mm -hmm. Here comes drone. Mm -hmm. I don't care about a drone. Get out of there. No. So let's just listen to them for a while and watch their behavior. Oh, that's interesting. So you said they're doing what? Fanning. Why do you think they're fanning? Right, so if they're fanning, then they're trying to spread her pheromone. So you know what I'm going to do today is something that a lot of new beekeepers would not do. We're going to do something called a direct release. So we have two sides here. We have a candy plug, which is right here. And we pull the cork out and there's candy there that they would eat through to get to the queen, which could take a couple of days. On this side over here, we just have a cork, and the cork leads straight into the queen. And if we pull the cork, the queen will come straight out and go down into the hive, and there'll be no introduction, period. Should we do that? I think we're going to. So I'm going to turn this off, because I need both hands to take that uh, cork out. What do you think? Good idea? Yeah. Okay. Ben's going to do the video. If he misses the queen going out, it's all on queen. Hey, nobody okay. listens to So, these are very calm considering we haven't used smoke or anything. We're going to pull this out. Very slow here. What are you saying? My nose is so itchy. Your nose is just okay. Now the queen could come out, the cork is out. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand this on end. With that opening. So we stood it up with the opening directly between the two frames. 
And we're hoping that the queen will go right down in. Yep. See, look at the bees we have right there. Okay. There are a lot of bees. And, and, and the good news is, like you said, they're fanning. Uh, they're really wanting that uh -huh. queen there. And so she may be reluctant even to leave the cage. So we're going to take some time. It's nice and warm today. There's not a lot of wind. It's nice and quiet outside. I'm not sweating. Yeah, you're not sweating. That's always a bonus. Um, I have a question. Why are bees' faces so cute? Why are their faces cute? I think they're fuzzy and they have big eyes. And I think that that's appealing to a lot of people. Make sure that that, that the opening is right there. In fact, I'm gonna lay this right here. Yep. If you see a honey, there we go. Let's see if keep an eye out and tell me if the queen leaves. Okay. I'm gonna zoom in really close. I think. Let me know the minute you see her come out, because then we'll take that uh, cage away. A worker came out. It's nice. So much bees covering it, I can't really see it. Right, that's why we're watching that hole on the end. That's where we'll be able to see her come out. Mm -hmm. They smell her through the screen. That's why they're all over the top. Mm -hmm. Oh, when we was fanning the wings so fast, I couldn't even see it. Wow. Yes, the bee sound really calm. Oh, what's backing out there? Is that the queen? Is that the queen? I think. I don't know. We're gonna find out. I think that might might have been the queen. Well, let's see. Mm -hmm. We'll see her when she leaves. Are you a joke? Okay. Oh, here comes the wind. Now there is a chance that while it was up on end. That. Um, that while it was up on end, the queen mm -hmm. could have gone out, but I think because there's so many bees on top still, mm -hmm. I think have. she's in there. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, and there's not like a bee crawling because they're mostly fanning in the front, so it would be, and and there's only like two or three or four or five bees not fanning in the front, so huh. and yeah, and the um, queen would be longer and stuff, so I think it would be easier to find the queen. And you know what today is? The last day of what month? Uh, um, August. Last day of August. So we'll need to write this in our queen log. It looks like we'll start fanning. Yeah, it's getting much quieter and look like there's a less bees and less and much less fanning. So we removed the queen cage. It is now September 1st. The colony is more active than it was. And we have plenty of uh, pollen coming in through the entrance. 
and we'll just have to do a follow-up later on. Thanks for watching.